everybody. <clears throat> my own, excuse me, <clears throat> there we are. My own response to uh, the text that we've just read together uh, from the second book of Samuel, my own response is something a little bit like this. Firstly, I love David for his love for Absalom. Uh, secondly, I respect David for putting the needs of others first. And thirdly, I admire David's ability to take rebuke and criticism from others, even when it's done badly. Um, I'd like to talk about those three things, uh, actually in reverse order. But before we do that, um, the story so far is this. King David has had to deal with a coup attempt led by his son, Absalom. In the face of Absalom's challenge to his leadership, to his kingship, um, David fled from his capital city, from Jerusalem, and he set up camp uh, east of the river Jordan. Last week, we read about the ensuing battle, and we read about how David's forces came to locate and kill the rebel Absalom. And we considered last week uh, David's desire, translated into a direct order to his generals, we considered David's desire, uh, which was for Absalom to be taken alive and unharmed. David still had hopes of being reconciled to his son. He desired to have mercy on him, to forgive him, to save him. But Absalom was killed not randomly or accidentally or anonymously, but deliberately and knowingly by Joab, who, in direct disobedience to the king's command, put three javelins through his heart. And last week we considered how the death of Absalom was, indeed, for various reasons, it was essential from both a political and from a theological perspective. David, sadly, was kidding himself if he thought that Absalom could be allowed to live. And that sermon uh, is on our website if you, if you missed it. But those events, what they do is those events set us up for the climax of our story, the climax of the entire episode. Because actually the climax to this whole thing, it wasn't the battle, as, as we might expect. We might think that's going to be the highlight of the story. No, it wasn't the battle. What is the climax, the whole point of this entire story, well, actually, the climax is how will David take the news that his son is dead? Um, our narrator spent three verses describing the actual battle, ten verses describing the circumstances surrounding Absalom's death, but then 15 verses describing how the news got to David. The foot race between Ahamas, son of Zadok, and an unnamed Cushite. This deliberate choice of material, this skillful slowing down of the narrative of the story as we get closer and closer to the main thing, that it makes chapter 18, verse 33, the climax of the entire story. What it's all been building up to, how would David react to the news of the death of his son. Verse 33, the king was shaken. He went up to the room over the gateway and wept. As he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, 
my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And uh, this grief once again brings Joab to center stage. Uh, Let's read those words again, beginning at the first verse of chapter 19. Joab was told, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. And for the whole army, the victory that day was turned into mourning. Because on that day, the troops heard it said, the king is grieving for his son. The men stole into the city that day as men steal in who are ashamed when they flee from battle. The king covered his face and cried aloud, Oh, my son Absalom! Oh, Absalom, my son, my son! Then Joab went into the house to the king and he said, Today you have humiliated all your men who have just saved your life and the lives of your sons and daughters and the lives of your wives and concubines. You love those who hate you and you hate those who love you. You've made it clear today that the commanders and their men mean nothing to you. I see that you'd be pleased if Absalom were alive today and all of us were dead. Now go out and encourage your men. I swear by the Lord that if you don't go out, not a man will be left with you by nightfall. This will be worse for you than all the calamities that have come on you from your youth till now. Well, that's one hell of a ticking off, isn't it? No doubt about it, Joab let David have it. Both barrels. The problem The difficulty with stuff like this is that somebody did indeed need to correct David. Um, And urgently. Something needed to be said. Probably, um, you know, Joab, Joab, his point is correct. Somebody did need to say something probably a bit like, David, David, please, now now is not the time to mourn. Uh, We know that your grief is terrible, but it's essential that you delay your mourning until later. Your troops, they're misunderstanding your sadness. That they, think you've, they think that you think that they've done the wrong thing. They're experiencing shame. Um, it's essential that you go and thank them. It's essential that you join and lead the celebrations. We know that this is desperately painful for you, but, but they saved your life and the lives of your family at great personal cost to themselves. So please... You have to go out now and encourage your men. David does need to hear this. David is a wise man. Perhaps almost without equal as wise men go in the Old Testament. But, you know, he's a wise man still. Everybody needs correction sooner or later. Everybody needs correction. His pain is so severe that it has thrown him, as pain always does, into introspection. He is lost inside of his own universe, unaware of how his actions are affecting others. He needs, and I I don't use the word need lightly, he needs to be rescued out of the self-centered hell of grief. 
in order to deal with the needs of others as a matter of urgent national security. But there are two things to see when it comes to Joab. The first is that Joab acts decisively at critical times. Joab has saved the kingship for David twice in one day. He was right to kill Absalom. And now he is right to alert David that he is acting with potentially catastrophic foolishness. But the second thing to see about Joab is how wrong it is the way that he does this. Let's look at the content of his rebuke. He begins with, Today you have humiliated all your men. That's not true. The fact that his men felt humiliated didn't make David responsible for their feelings. No, uh, none of us uh, uh, take responsibility for the feelings of others. All of us have to take responsibility for whatever it is that happens between our ears. David's not responsible for how they feel. It is true that they felt humiliated. It is not true that David humiliated them. He continues, you love those who hate you and you hate those who love you. You have made it clear today that the commanders um, and their men mean nothing to you. I see that you would be pleased if Absalom were alive today and all of us were dead. That is a series of accusations, all of which are untrue. They are slanderous accusations. Joab deliberately misconstrues David's actions and then judges the thoughts and attitudes of David's heart, something that actually he knows nothing about, that nobody knows anything about except God. God can see the thoughts and attitudes of David's heart clearly, but nobody else knows anything about that unless David tells them. Well, Joab judges the thoughts and attitudes of David's heart with a view to condemning him. David, a man lost in compassionate grief, is judged by Joab as being ungrateful, callous, and vindictive. And David is none of those things. It it hurts to be judged, doesn't it? Uh, By this I mean... It hurts when somebody presumes to know the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts and then condemns us for them. It hurts when they're oh so wrong. Can you, can you think of a time when somebody judged you? It takes me only a moment to recall three times when I've been judged. And I still feel hurt when I recall those times and angry with those who judged me. In those instances, what I'd done was neither right nor wrong. That, that wasn't the point. No, rather, I did something, and, and there were people who judged me, believing that they knew why I had done what I'd done, and believing that my motives were evil, were self-serving. When in actual fact, they weren't. Although, of course, I have forgiven them, that's the decision of a moment, The healing of wounds can take many years. 
Can, can you think of a time when somebody judged you in that way? It happens to everyone. But it's important that we understand how it works so that we don't do it. Jesus teaches us, do not judge. David's been judged with a view to rejection. And he has every right, according to the natural justice that informs our hearts, David has every right to come out full roar, sword free of its scarab, weapons free, fire at will, let the arrows fly. Joab needs to be cut down to size. And just in case you're wondering, his day is coming. The Americans uh, have a word for people like Joab. It begins with the letter A and ends with the word whole. Joab continues... Now go out and encourage your men. I swear by the Lord that if you don't go out, not a man will be left with you by nightfall. This will be worse for you than all the calamities that have come on you from your youth till now. That's a threat. Joab clearly implicates himself as the leader of a new coup attempt if David doesn't obey him. Joab is a treacherous man. And the treachery of these words is that he can always claim later on to be on the windy side of the law if cross-examined. He can always say, oh, I didn't mean it that way. And, of course, his words are deliberately vague. But yet we know what he means. And for those of us who love Jesus, we see the rank hypocrisy in taking a vow in the name of Yahweh, a vow in the name of Yahweh to disobey the Lord's anointed. And it's just, it's appalling. This is the worst type of enemy, a religious man. Someone who is familiar with all the things of God and uses God's name freely, but is, like Absalom, utterly unrepentant in his own heart. It was right for Absalom to die, but wrong for Joab to rebel against David's command. It was right to correct David's behavior, but wrong to judge and threaten him. Joab is the type of man who believes in God, but also believes that God needs his help in establishing justice. Joab is the type of man who lives by the proverb, God helps those who help themselves. Not realizing that the truth is closer to, God help those who help themselves. But I admire David's uh, ability how he reacts. He takes correction on the chin, even when it comes from an underling, even when it is insulting and slanderous and contemptuous and insubordinate and impertinent. But what David does is he holds on to what is right, helpful and insightful, and he lets the other stuff fall away. Now, this is important that we see this. Why is it important? Well, right from the start of this particular series of sermons, we've, we've seen a particular theological paradox at work in these stories. David is going through this awful time. But the thing of it is, is that he's going through this awful time because he's being punished by God. He's being disciplined by the Almighty. And he knows that. David committed adultery with Bathsheba and arranged for the murder of her husband when it turned out that she was pregnant. 
creating a cover-up so that Uriah the Hittite was killed on the battlefield. The prophet Nathan came to David and challenged him, catching him in a parable. David confessed, asked to be forgiven, and was forgiven. Nevertheless, there would be consequences. Nathan said it. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret. But I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. So then, in all of this nightmare and in all of this hardship, David is understood, this is from God. This is from the God who loves me and disciplines me as his son in order that I might learn the difference between right and wrong. And I certainly did wrong. But for us as guilty bystanders, we sense the paradox in this because because actually, um, as fallen creatures, we, to one degree or another, we all experience correction as rejection. We resist criticism, we defend ourselves from rebuke and come out all guns blazing when somebody has a go at us. But David experiences correction from God as acceptance as evidence of the strength of God's love for him, that he should be called a child of God. And this revolutionizes for David his experience of correction and criticism at the hands of human beings as well as at the hands of God. When accused, he doesn't accuse back. When slandered, he offers no insults in return. When when criticized, he accepts what is good and lets the other stuff fall to the ground. And who does that remind you of? 1 Peter chapter 2. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Why is this so important? Well, here's the point. David's rehabilitation is complete. At least for the time being. In his sin, David became monstrous. But under the discipline of God, through the twin experiences of grace and suffering, David has become just like Jesus again. So then, having accepted the rebuke, the criticism, David does what's needed. He puts aside for, he, for a time, he puts aside his own devastating grief in order to attend for the needs of others. Like Jesus, he attends to the needs of others. He goes out and encourages his men. And so I respect David for being able to put the needs of others ahead of his own crushing needs at a time of critical need. Like Jesus, David attends to the needs of others before his own. So then I admire David's ability to take rebuke and criticism. I respect David for how he put up, uh, how he put the needs of others um, before his own. But I love David for his love for Absalom. 
because now that David is like Jesus again, David is showing me the love of the Father for his children. By the way, um, ink and parchment are precious. Ink and parchment are both expensive. Um, so, so the Hebrew scribes use words sparingly. Um, to repeat something is to make sure that we all understand. To say it three times is to give it profound emphasis. But in this narrative, we hear, O Absalom, five times. And, O my son, Eight times. Now, I do not know what it's like to lose a child. Um, I do know that the experts in such things uh, say that the loss of a child is as devastating an experience of grief and loss as this world provides. David is grieving the loss of one of his children. In the words of a favorite film of mine, no father should have to bury his son. The universe seems to revolt at the injustice of it, at the, the unnatural disregard for the ordering of things. Next to his love for Absalom, the kingship, the thing which they were fighting over, the kingship is meaningless to David. Indeed, his own life is meaningless. His own life is nothing compared to his love for his son. Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son, if only I had died instead of you. He wishes he could have died in his stead as his substitute. D David did not get the desire of his heart, which was reconciliation with his son, an opportunity to tell Absalom that he was forgiven, that he was loved, that they could be together again. And now David knows that that will never, ever happen. But... In, in David, conformed to the image and likeness of Jesus of Nazareth, in David, we now, in his grief, glimpse the father heart of God. We glimpse the fatherhood of God. David is showing us God's grief over the death of every sinner. That is to say, those who are lost to him. And when we see that grief, we understand God's love for us. We, un we understand uh, why God has done something about it. And we understand what God has done about it. That God the Father, um, in God our Father, our God knows what it is like to bury a son. At the cross, he knows what it is like to lose a child. And on the cross, in God the Son, our God did die in our stead, in our place, as our substitute, in order that we might be forgiven and reconciled and saved. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray. But now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. 
this is the mercy of God. That indeed God loves us even more than David loved Absalom. And he has done something about it. He has done that which David could never do. He has done something about our predicament. Done what was needed. But I, I love David for his love for Absalom because actually it's a picture of God's love for me and also a picture of God's love for you. I uh, had intended in this series of sermons to take us right to the end of David's life, but I bit off more than I could chew. So after nine sermons in this series, I think that's enough for now. Uh, we'll end this series of sermons here and come back to the last part of David's life next year, God willing. But in concluding this series, which has taken us from the point at which things started to unravel in David's life through to the conclusion of the resulting coup attempt, in this series we have covered the rehabilitation of David through the experiences of grace and suffering. We've seen how those things worked in David's life. I guess what I've gotten out of this work is a new appreciation for what God is doing in all of our lives, that he can use all things to make us more like Jesus, his son. And that is what God is doing in all of our lives. That is his aim. That is his, our, uh, that is his agenda, to conform us to the likeness of his son, to make us more like Jesus. That's what it's all about. And something particularly that I've gained is um, a new understanding of suffering, correction, and criticism. The way that David cops curse and abuse. And insofar as I can copy David in this, I too can be more like Jesus, his Lord and mine, to the glory of God our Father. And so the Lord be with you all. Amen.